When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. This is the first real victory, however temporary, for the resistance. Come on. You're the commander-in-chief. You can't be disappointed with the outcome of a federal case and say, well, the so-called judge. Any negative polls are fake news. You got that? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says that negative news is fake news. Donald Trump. You're beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jacob Weisberg, and I want to introduce my new co-hosts on the show. Sitting next to me, Virginia Heffernan, who writes for all the best publications, New York Times Magazine, many others. You should read her book, Magic and Loss which is fantastic. It's a bedside book at my house because my wife has been reading it right now (laughs) and highly recommends it. And Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent. Hello. Hi. Jamel, you're looking particularly splendid this evening. This is a radio show people can't see. You have on a a light-colored tweed suit with, yes. a, with a purple knit tie. Yes, and these bipartisan, tie. <laughs> bipartisan tie. Bipartisan tie. Bipartisan tie, yeah. yes. Very nice. Very nice. And, and Virginia, uh, motorcycle jacket, flower dress. That's right. You suede can say boots. Anything, <laughs> these guys are looking cool. Those of you who are going to be listening at home. We're trying to keep our spirits up, I think. Yeah. Um, well, I guess, so we're going to be following kind of a GabFest format tonight. We've got three topics, and I'm very excited. We have a special guest who's going to be joining us for a segment later, Dahlia Lithwick. She's going to come down like Gaga last night. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, first topic I want to ask you guys about is Steve Bannon, and we may get a little bumper part about Steve Miller. Yeah. Um, but. I want us to try to dig a little deeper and try to understand what Steve Bannon's all about. But first, he's on the cover of Time magazine That's this right. week, yep. which is the thing that is going to turn Donald Trump against him because Donald Trump does right, not right. want his uh, aides on right. the cover on magazine. But they did, they, they put him on the cover, but, you know, he looks like a florid drunk. I mean, exactly. they, this is like <laughs> close up photo with the burst blood vessels. He looked like, looks like. Charles Bukowski, did you, did you see Barfly? Yes, kind of like one of the later scenes of that. He does not, it's not a flattering photograph. I mean, my, my, my reference point in my head was he looked like a villain from a Pokemon cartoon. But that's, <laughs> uh, yeah. but I'm a millennial, so that's where my head's at. Are most you trying of the to time. get that monster? 
Yeah, trying yeah. to get that. Um, yeah, rosacea. We just learned also Trump in heavy treatment for... <laughs> is, that, is that the medical term for burst yes, blood vessels well, see, in your face I'm from drinking? I'm the only Irish American up here, so I know from rosacea, <laughs> and I recognize a fellow sufferer in, in Steve Bannon. See, we can start our compassion there. We all have dermatological issues. Yeah. Um, but actually, speaking of identity politics, I'm a little worried when I try to fathom the mind of Steve Bannon that I am incapable because... I don't know how, maybe he's just inscrutable to me as a man. I just don't know how little Steve Bannon was born to his working class family and they just, he was a baby and he grew up from that beautiful baby to be Steve Bannon. All right. <laughs> Become a John Carpenter character. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Um, but can you, I mean, do you have some thoughts about it? We both went to the University of Virginia. Right, right. Richard Spencer's alma mater. Um, <laughs> Steve Bannon went to Virginia Tech. That's right. And is from Richmond. So maybe we have a little intersection. I don't know. Did you ever meet a Steve Bannon type? I, I, you know, I, I didn't. I think I met a few people who were like proto Steve Bannons, right? Sort of uh, like there's a type, and I, because we're both UVA grads, I think you'll know the type, which is someone who is like too clever by half and too smart by half and like thinks that their ability to pull nonsense references from the books they read in college like constitutes an <laughs> intellect. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> Take that, Steve Bannon. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's really listening to us. <laughs> you know, in trying to understand this guy, I mean, one serious possibility is that he's a bullshit artist, that he's the guy who has, you know, he can reference Augustine or Thomas Aquinas right, right. because of a theology course he took in college and that... You know, in a White House where there's not a lot of uh, competition for the title of top <laughs> top intellect, you sort of bamboozle each other. Right, you can right. bamboozle people that way. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think I think definitely there's some uh, kind of incoherence there. Um, I think this is a guy who's very impressed with his own perceived intellect. But I would say that he does seem to have like some defined ideas, and they're kind of all centered on or near uh, this notion that the West is fighting this grand war against Islam, and that the mm. only way to prevail is for basically to reconstitute a kind of Christendom, right? And so you have to you have to get the the white, and this is also Christendom to, to, to defined racially as well. So you have to get the Russians on your side because they're fellow white Christians. You got to get your continental Europeans on your side because they're fellow white Christians. And you have to make the United States, of whom's identity is very fluid, a, a white Christian nation kind of in its bones and unify against Islam. I think that's there and it's co- it's it's coherent in the sense that like I could describe it to you in a couple sentences and it kind of made sense. It's yeah. not particularly coherent in its sort of correspondence to reality. But Does he worry about terrorism? I mean, the the radical Islamic terrorism, that the name that is meant to condemn to hell every Muslim, they seem to be worried about terrorist activity. But Steve Bannon, not so much. I mean, he seems to want to affirmatively preserve some imagined civic society that codes as Judeo-Christian. I hate that way of doing it. I don't know why, <laughs> but Judeo-Christian makes it seem inclusive or something. But right, anyway. Right, right. Judeo-Christian set of values that are never quite named against the onslaught of some other ideology, but he doesn't seem like he's trying to save lives or particularly concerned about national security. No, I think that's right. I think think insofar that he has this worldview, it's very much this notion of um, 
both preserving this imagined Western past, exalting and kind of like white heteropatriarchal leadership. Yeah. Um, and if scaring people about Muslims is what it's going to take to get people on your side, then Steve Bannon has, sees nothing wrong with scaring people about Muslims, although he does seem to have some kind of genuine hostility towards immigrants, right? Like it's, it's not just pure fear-mongering. He does really seem to think that American society is weakened, becomes less uh, vigorous because we rely so much on immigrants. So theory mm. one. Steve Bannon believes in the clash of civilizations right. between the West and Muslims. And I will grant you that has um, considerable explanatory power. It's also gra- grounded a little bit in this speech or this Skype study he gave to the Vatican, which is kind of mm-hmm. the place where he described his views. And among other things, that explains positive attitudes towards Russia, right. because Russian or- Orthodox Christians are part of this clash of civilization. They're on our side in, in that clash in this worldview. And yes, Muslim ban. Muslims out. They're on, they're on the other side. Do you think that theory would appeal a lot to Donald Trump? I mean, I'm just thinking about it, and mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, look, that's been out there. The clash of civilization was an idea that was, of course, explicitly rejected by George W. Bush and his administration uh, and has been, you know, not a mainstream conservative or Republican theory until now. But I guess my skepticism about that is it doesn't quite explain enough. It doesn't explain how he got in there with Trump, what he sold Trump on. I don't think he's in there every day saying, you know, Mr. Trump, there's this clash of civilizations going on and we're right. fighting back. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so, I mean, I feel like you're, you're, we got first got to establish that, like, who knows what Donald Trump cares about, right? Like, <laughs> not a guy who's thought deeply about anything. Well, the, but, the, the, but drapes, drapes, right, the drapes, the drapes in the yeah. White House, uh, yeah. White House yeah. drapes. Like I mean, fifteen like, swatches. <laughs> did you look at? I, I, as someone who can appreciate interior decorating, I get it. Uh, well, how, how, what was the surprise there? He picked the gold. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I could have done that for him. Yeah. So, so one thing it's worth saying is that Donald Trump has had a kind of defined worldview going back as early as the 80s, right? Like, he's always been uh, obsessed about foreigners beating America, about uh, us making bad deals with foreigners. And if you go to his language about Japan in the 80s, you can just kind of switch out China or Mexico with Japan. Um, and you have, like, a Donald Trump mm. rant about this stuff from, like, 87. And I think it's, I think it's noteworthy that Trump's thinking about this has always been kind of racialized. It's these, these <clears throat> brown foreigners of one way or another are a threat to our economic dominance. So I think I think that, I mean, I think first and foremost, Trump is a nativist. I think that's just kind of part of who he is. And he may have been uh, attracted to Bannon on the basis of sort of Bannon and Breitbart in particular is kind of like explicitly xenophobic stance. But I wouldn't discount the degree to which Breitbart, the publication, spent so much time flattering Trump throughout the campaign right. from the beginning and that Trump is someone who responds extremely well to flattery and that this relationship they have may not necessarily be ideological. It may just be that Stephen Bannon knows how to talk to a man like Trump and make him think that he's valued. And Trump is, uh, let's say he's not sophisticated enough to pick up on the con. So here's yeah. another theory. And then Virginia can tell me why I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> Republicans have been spending a lot of time for years talking about the browning of America and the electoral implications of that. And generally, the thesis coming from people on the right has been, we can't continue to win 
presidential elections in particular, because a lot more people vote in presidential years than in midterm elections, without starting to attract Latinos, other other non-white voters, because although they're not going to be the majority of the population until 2040, 2050, at some point, the percentage of the white vote that you need, if on um, the assumption that you're not going to get much of the non-white vote, becomes overwhelming. I've always thought that was a pretty good thesis. The question is what year that becomes true. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have thought it was a, we were a little bit past the point where it was already true, and that's part of the surprise of Trump's election is that he sort of overcame this demographic trend, even though he didn't win the popular vote, he, he got elected. Seems to me, Steve, there's a Steve Bannon argument that we can stop this and maybe even reverse this trend, that it's not that we have to get a share of black votes and Latino votes, it's that we have to stop this browning of America, because that doesn't, just in political terms, really, really bad news for the Republican Party. And we can stop it in a number of ways. We reduce, to reduce African-American turnout with, by not enforcing the voting rights, preventing enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. We can slow down immigration, which will affect it in any number of ways. We can deport immigrants who might otherwise become citizens and vote. You do all these things. It makes long-term political sense. Do you think that might be what Steve Bannon has been telling Donald Trump? This is the, the thousand-year Reich idea that, <laughs> that, that Bannon is trying to secure a place for centuries to come for Trump right. and his, his political descendants. Would I mean, it, I, you think so? Yeah, I think, I, think that's, I think that's definitely plausible. Um, I, mean, I think Bannon has caught on to something that maybe skeptics of the demographic transition argument always noted, which was that Republicans have demographic trouble running, winning the presidency as long as white white voters of the mass continue to vote basically had as they've been voting like largely for republicans but not overwhelmingly for republicans and in that world basically the country votes like you know colorado or virginia right like some sizable minority of whites vote for the democrats and they win all the the non-whites as well but if all of a sudden america started voting like mississippi or alabama where whites are voting sort of 80 70, 80 percent, 90 percent for one party, then you can still you can kind of win indefinitely as long as whites are the majority of the voting population. I think Bannon has sort of figured out, right, that like if you basically try to radicalize America's white population, get them to start thinking of themselves as white people who are embattled, then then you can kind of retard the growth of this Democratic demographic majority. I don't know what Trump thinks about this. Like again, so I, I really sincerely think that because Trump won, we've all begun to overestimate how competent and well thought out these people are. Right? Yeah. Like that This is we, a well known phenomenon in Washington. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we were also stunned by Trump's win that we've forgotten the really important thing about Trump's win was that it was basically a fluke. Right. Like it was it was you run some number of simulations and you get some crazy result. And it just so happens we live in the the, the dimension where that crazy we live in the dimension where it's like the Berenstein Bears and Donald Trump won. Right. So like so uh, that's Judeo Christian values. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, (laughs) So. I think it's entirely plausible. Right. That like Trump doesn't have 
Bannon's flattering him. Bannon, you know, has some has some like crazy ideas about like you know, the changing the course of global history, and he has this like malleable vessel in Trump. And Trump is just there, kind of kind of happy to be there. Hopes people will love him now, and they're kind of just stumbling through. And I think I think there's evidence to suggest that this is very much the case. Has does Bannon know that Trump thinks? I'm sorry. Does Trump know that Bannon thinks he's an idiot? That he, the Bannon thinks he can put himself on the National Security Council and Trump will sign it without reading it. You know, yeah. tr- um, Bannon made a movie, a, a kind of very stirring documentary about Sarah Palin. And he has a, an interest in taking sort of what looks like stupidity and making it a noble American ideal. And I think he's so used to making that change in his mind that he probably doesn't tell himself even that he's doing that translation. I mean, you all know this. I think Stephen Bannon is a collapsitarian. I think he Wait, wants... Wait, collapsitarian. Okay. Go, this yeah. is a Silicon Valley term. I think it, Peter Thiel probably conforms to it too. Universal joblessness, the destruction of you know, all institutions from media to professional sports to, to manufacturing. And, you know, he's like a... He's like a, I don't know, do people talk about Thanatos anymore? Like the death drive? Yeah. <laughs> They're just, you know, we talked, there was a lot of discussion of eros and sexuality and gender during the campaigning. But if Freud is to be believed or pop psych is to be believed, the drive to just to destruction is just as powerful. And when you kept seeing articles of faith being inverted over and over during the campaign, and now, you know, to stomp in with an executive order, to talk about Frederick Douglass as though he was alive and, 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 and talk about his He own. was really sorry he couldn't be with us. He's actually going to be on uh, Rachel Maddow with Dahlia later tonight. He's, sitting, yeah, yeah. he's uh, <laughs> sitting shiva for the victims of the Bowling, of the bowling Green Massacre, right? <laughs> um, 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 but, you know, to say, the, to say the things, I don't know, to have Holocaust Remembrance Day and not mention Jews, I mean, these are, these are like... Nietzschean inversions. They're just like what, is, like where we used to like life, now we like death. Where we used to like sanity, now we like florid psychosis. Wait a second. Does Steve Bannon want to kill himself or kill the rest of us? Uh, or, or I mean, you or know, he doesn't want anyone to survive him, right? Like he's so <laughs> paralyzed by death that it's like if I'm gonna die, you must too. Right, well, like, I mean, we, you guys you know, have gotten very dark very quickly tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've no, got but, three whole segments. I mean, together. I was like listening yeah. to I the think, Cure yeah. before this. I'm like, my headspace is there. <laughs> but I think he. I mean, first, well, okay. For some reason, the small detail on Bannon's resume that obsesses me is his foray into gaming when he had like a little World of Warcraft empire. Did I know and follow this? Where he committed pretty much the cart, the signature fraud of massively multiplayer online role-playing games is to pay people in China to mine gold for you so that, so that like white people with Judeo-Christian values who play World of Warcraft can do better in the game. I mean, it's just like, it's as bad as it Wait, gets. Wait, he cheated in this game? He created? Not only did he cheat, because some people, it's, it's very, I mean, it's, everyone China? knows this. <laughs> it, it, well, it typically, yes, with China. Um, it's, um, you know, that Anyway, there's a tedious part of the game, which is mining gold. And so a lot of players want to advance in the game, but they don't want to do the tedious work of it. So they pay people a pittance abroad in order to do this for the game. But the point is, it's just like as bad as it gets. Like there's nothing more just like despicable and tiny and gross. And it just suggests to me that Steve Bannon, who's also had ideological, uh, you know, 
done ideological 180s over and over again. His story, like Pence's, is that he was a Kennedy, Kennedy Democrat, union guy, and grew up that way. Then he was just a go-go 80s capitalist. Then he, decide, then he went in the Navy, and when he came home, he decided that things were just as bad under George W. Bush as they were under Carter. Then he hated the whole, whole then he hated all the parties and the whole establishment. Finally, he decided that he hated the rich because his father had been screwed over by the banks, but the banks had been the recipient of the socialist package that bailed them out. So I don't know where he stands vis-a-vis rich people who benefit from bailouts now that, you know, he's right. Trump's, now tr- that he's ventriloquizing for Trump. But, you know, he's, <laughs> it, he's flipped so many times. I don't think that I believe that he is a... Um, that he's just got his eye on the prize, that he's like a single theory philosopher who's just exercising, you know, his clear idea about the way the future should go. I think he, like a Lenin, like people have said he is. I don't think he's that at all. I I think he's like a mischievous poltergeist figure. Right. (laughs) You know? Not a devil, not not like the Grim Reaper, but like a he just makes chaos. You know, I, I think there's a way to, to split the difference here. He's sort of like you know, if, if history, uh, uh, you know, first is tragedy, second is farce. Yeah. Then uh, he's sort of like Carl, like like the farcical Carl Smith, right? Like kind of just this <laughs> this guy who perceives himself to be the grand ideologue of Trumpism, but in fact is just sort of a, a miserable little imp who hap- who just happens. To have the ear of the president of the United States. Yeah. 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 Well, he made his money on Seinfeld. I mean, it's like he thinks he's, <laughs> oh, he right. thinks he's Lenin, but he's really Kramer. Right. right, right, yeah. right. Yes. And we know where that ends. Yeah, exactly. yeah, he's he's Kramer under the spell of a death yeah. cult. Exactly. Real life. All right. We're moving on. We have a friend who's coming with us long distance to help us introduce our second topic tonight. Hello, everybody. I'm so excited that Slate is having this program. And that you're looking at my fantastic foreign policy, specifically the tweets, tremendous tweets, amazing tweets. I am the best tweeter when it comes to foreign policy. So please learn from a master. And that master is me. Iran is playing with fire. They don't appreciate how kind President Obama was to them, not me. Iran has been formally put on notice for firing a ballistic missile. Should have been thankful for the terrible deal the U.S. made with them. Do you believe it? The Obama administration agreed to take thousands of illegal immigrants from Australia. Why? I will study this dumb deal. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're, we're going to call this segment Foreign Policy in 140 Characters. I mean, you know, the, the horror that Trump was going to continue to tweet in office 
gave way to the to the greater horror that he was going to tweet at other countries. Unbelievable. I mean, I and, know. you know, there are some special risks um, around foreign policy, just doing things impulsively in, in real time. You know, it's been two weeks. We haven't, he hasn't taken us to war on social media yet. I just, but, I, I mean, there's been, there was so many interesting consequences for the language in the, uh, in the election and during this um, administration. And one of the things I keep trying to imagine is when Mahmoud Ahmadinejad gets his briefing about the tweets to Iran, <laughs> is it, is it, does someone walk him through how the Terminator became the governor of California <laughs> And is a, what Vienna, an Austrian actor, bodybuilder turned actor, and but now has the apprentice and is getting not as good ratings as the president <laughs> of the United States of America got when he originated the show. And that means he thinks that the deal with Iran, the nuclear deal with Iran that Obama did, is somehow, was somehow too kind, and now we're going to be tough on him. I mean, what does that even translate into Farsi? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, it's really interesting because I, I, keep, I, have, I have a similar thought just like, you know, so if if Barack Obama had tweeted at China, like, you know, you guys are whack and we're going to go after you, right? Like, if that had <laughs> happened, the Chinese would have taken it really seriously. They'd have been like, you know, Barack Obama's a serious man. He, he knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's doing. So if Barack Obama says this to us over Twitter, obviously the Holocaust, the, there's a nuclear Holocaust coming, right? Like, we're obviously all going to yeah, die. Yeah, that We got to have a first strike, right? Like, because this is a serious business. But... Donald Trump is not a serious man, uh, even though he's president of the United States. And does the Chinese leadership see his tweets and they say to themselves, we can't ignore this because this may have, you know, uh, geopolitical implications. But also, let's just like hold our horses. Let's like not, let's not overreact. Let's like be calm about this because Americans elected a madman and we just have to like adjust accordingly. Right. I mean, they're trying to figure out, I think like we all are, how much, what model do we have of Trump that gives us enough predictive power to to decide on whether he's going to do something violent? That's the thing that I'm curious about, like whether he'll act on, you know, when we've talked about narcissism on the show, one thing that's interesting about, about malignant narcissists sort of going diagnosis of Trump is they're not actually violent. Like they don't, they don't, they make their families miserable, but they don't hit their wives and children. And it, it just, I think it remains to be seen whether he's actually like an itchy, I don't think, you know, Saddam Hussein had actually murdered people right, right. Um, by the time he was in office. And, and, and Putin is a, is, a, is a quite violent guy. I just, I don't know. I see him being defensive and liking walls and bands and being safe in his house, but I just don't see him throwing a punch. And so I think that trying to read his tweets, like, is he really going to, like, press the button? Yeah. Right. But, um, I mean, it, it's funny. You, you know, you talk about China, and there was that episode right at the beginning where he, he took the call from, from Taiwan. And that would have been, as you say, if, if yeah. Barack Obama had done it, that would have been a vast provocation calling into question all of our policy with China. And China's reaction to that was like, eh. You know, he got he got he got he got duped. Basically, there were there Taiwan's lobbyists got him to make the call, which seems like maybe partly true, partly not. But it gives you know, in China, it's the opposite extreme because if if Donald Trump has the attention span of a minute, they're thinking hundreds of years, right? Right, and it huh. definitely gives a huge advantage to the long-term thinkers 
and one of the ways it gives them the advantage is they can choose to interpret his actions any way they want. Mm. Right. The risk comes if there is someone equally impulsive or impulsive in a different way kind of on the other end of the line. Because otherwise, and you know, you saw this with Australia too, right? I mean, he had this, you know, he 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 had this snit fit, yeah. you know, totally pointless against, you know, one of America's longest and strongest allies. And the Australian prime minister didn't take the bait, right? right. He, you know, the, then the line is, oh, well, you know, it was a useful exchange in views. But your, your point is for an, an, an equally hot-headed world leader, it could be a pretext for... Well, we do have a few of those. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Iran, you know, we heard the Iran tweets is, um, you know, not a hotbed of mental health. And, you Just know, like the United States. Iran <laughs> looks, you know, a, a perfectly rational actor when you think about Kim Jong-un. And I think, right. you yes, know, part right. of, uh, I gather, part of what President Obama was trying to impress on Trump that was actually a big deal about being president is <sighs> there's a big crisis brewing with North Korea that yeah. he's going to have to handle. And that's the one that worries me being handled on Twitter. So that train of thought has me thinking just about, again, how other countries relate to us now that Trump is president. And part of me wonders is, is it, if it won't be kind of a soft situation like with North Korea. So like the thing about North Korea is that everyone recognizes that this is an awful regime, that the leadership is unstable and dangerous, but no one really wants to do anything about it. Everyone, China, South Korea, the US, Japan, everyone's content kind of just to like, to let the provocations pass, mm. to kind of just like keep the temperature down as much as it can. Lack, lack of really good options. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like, you know, if, if North Korea collapses, we have a massive refugee crisis that could create like an armed conflict on the Korean peninsula. Again, uh, we don't want to, you know, we don't really want to have to be responsible Frankly, with the humanitarian catastrophe yep. uh, that would come with the collapse of that regime. Well, so, thousands of conventional missiles pointed at Seoul. I mean, the amount of right. damage that they can do to right. South Korea is is unfathomable. So, but I think I know where you're going. Yeah, so... Yeah. Is we're, it, we're that now. Yeah, we're that now, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, like yeah. Uh, the United States is indispensable to the global order as it, <laughs> as it currently exists. And the, the rival challengers here, right, are China and Russia... And a lot of other, you know, liberal democracies, democracies not so liberal, liberal states not as democratic as they could be, kind of like want the status quo yeah. to stay where it is. And so do they basically say, listen, okay, America got having some problems right now. Yeah. <laughs> we get We're just going to wait this one out. We're just going to yeah. hope that the opposition party gets its stuff together in four years and we'll be back to something that's normal. And in the meantime, when your president does something bananas, yep. we'll just pretend like it didn't happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think, I mean, Kim Jong-un is a useful comparison in the, I mean, I, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, all right. Yeah. As they, okay. Oh, God. Because in trying to find still a ty typology of character for, for, uh, for Donald Trump, I keep coming back to, all right, on Project One Runway, the, one of the most damning things they used to say about a designer was, I have questions about the taste level. <laughs> and, I mean, the first thing that comes up, we're supposed to now not talk about his hair and skin anymore because we're supposed to be beyond that. But it's still, it is outrageously interesting to me how 
tonally wrong both Trump and um, and Kim Jong-un are and how that when you, you know in this discussion of like if Obama had said China's whack and we're going to kill you that would have meant another thing but with Trump who lets Melania stand behind him and walks up the stairs in advance of her and wears his tie too long and says the opposite of what he should at every given time He's just the like the taste level is so wrong. He's so discourteous in such right. a profound way that he can only be read as noise. Right. You know? Um and I and I actually I do think that there's something in the like whatever could make you wake up and style yourself like Kim Jong un <laughs> <laughs> or Donald Trump has a like speaks to how you f- exist vis-a-vis other people yeah. you know and so, i think you're right that there's something people are just too squeamish around around north korea and maybe now around the united states like we're the ones that are like let him serve at his shift and you know we'll get through this right. so say you are one of the countries in the world that faces very serious issues in which the united states is crucial Say, for example, you're a leader of Ukraine, like Mr. Poroshenko, who I think Trump talked to maybe over the weekend. Um, what's, what's the advice did for he that? Ta- did he really? Yeah, he yeah. had a prepare for war yeah, exactly. conversation with him. Um, don't count on us. <laughs> yeah. Calvary's not coming. Um, do you, you know, should they basically be sitting it out and hoping, hoping Trump isn't president even for four years or at the worst case scenario going in four years? Or do they have to, at some level, accept this as American policy? That's a really interesting point you make. Basically, do you, does the, should the rest of the world assume this is a bad dream for which we're going to wake up pretty soon? I mean, I think this is really interesting because I, between what the two of you have said is, I'm getting the sense that that is pretty much the policy of all of us. It's just like, this is a nightmare. Let's try to get through this. And the, the danger is... One, that we might behave, mirror his psychosis or the psychosis of this administration and start doing crazy things. Or two, that other, pe- other actors, bad actors, will use it as a pretext. Right. Not that they're actually provoked, but that they already had intentions of undermining liberal democracy elsewhere. And they'll use Trump's election to wreak more havoc. You, you mentioned earlier that Trump sees, Trump is comfortable within walls and sequestered away from other people. Um, that's perfect for an expansionist power, right? Who, who now knows that the United States is not going to say much of anything or do much of anything substantive. That's right. If you decide to take another little chunk of Ukraine, if you decide to uh, send some aircraft carriers, uh, you know, near Taiwan. Yeah, America first might mean we'll leave you alone. Right. You got you guys take care of your thing. Jamel, how do you feel about opponents of Donald Trump calling themselves the resistance? Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like when George W. Bush was president, if Democrats had said we're the resistance, it would have been offensive. Right, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> right, and then it was just sort of like, yeah, Bush sucks, we'll, we'll, we'll beat him. Right, and but this term's catching on. Like, right. it rallies people think yeah. of themselves as the resistance. So yeah, I, they do. I, I'm okay with it for two reasons. The first is that I do think Trump represents a unique threat to American pluralism and democracy. Um, I, I, I'm not going to go as far as say that Trump is sort of like, you know, un-American because Trump very much comes out of a very well-defined and easily identifiable American tradition of illiberalism and nativism and xenophobia. Um, But the kind of America that millions of people really love and cherish, the pluralistic uh, uh, sort of uppercase L liberal 
um, uh, place where we honor Martin Luther King Jr. And, and that that America, I think, gets under threat uh, from Trump. So given the stakes in this case, uh, given that like we're kind of facing kind of the you know the shambling body of the Confederacy, yeah. Um, Then the resistance is fine. The second reason (laughs) is so if you spend too much time on Twitter, like I do, you you notice that people like to analogize politics as things that are close in their lives. And on Twitter, for a lot of people, that's Harry Potter. A lot of lot of a lot of millennials, (laughs) near millennials, read a lot of Harry Potter. And that's sort of like their cult, pop cultural schema for understanding um, conflicts like this. And some people find that very annoying and very juvenile and very childish. I think it's okay, right? Like, I think it's okay that if people's pop cultural touchstones are like bands of people against authoritarian states, whether it's Star Wars or Harry Potter or whatever, or the Hunger Games, then like, if that's what they understand these things, hey, yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna yell at you for doing that. You you understand this as you need to understand it. And I think the resistance as a as a name for this does tap into those touchstones for people. For people who you know, again, the Hunger Games, Harry Potter, Star Wars, any number of other properties. I think it does capture something that has captivated people, and specifically captivated people who were very much against, demographically very much against Trump, and who find themselves a bit adrift. It gives them a way of orienting themselves in the world. I, all li- right. I like it, too. I, I kind of like I it. I kind of like it. Okay, yeah. good. Kinda, all right, let's go for it. <laughs> That's it for that topic. But, you know, I think when my grandchildren ask me what I did in the resistance, I'm going to say, I read Dahlia Lithwick every day. <laughs> That's right. And she told me what to do. And now I'd like to welcome her onto the stage Slate's jurisprudence columnist and the host of the podcast Amicus. Dahlia, are you back there? Come join us. Welcome, Dahlia. Hey. We, we wanted to have you because we love you and also because we have had on our minds the topic of constitutional crisis. What a constitutional crisis is. Are we having one now? How will we know when we're having one? <laughs> what do we do about it when we are having one? What are the symptoms? <laughs> what are the symptoms? <laughs> Side effects. Nine out of ten dentists help, agree. Help us out here. Now, I know you've been backstage checking the updates from the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in California. So whether it's the crisis or not, what's going on right now? Uh, I mean, what's going on is they're going to hear uh, oral argument tomorrow just on this question of the stay. In other words, they're not going to talk about the merits, uh, but the Ninth Circuit three-judge panel, adorably they're doing this telephonically, like it's still 1977. (laughs) Um, And so they're going to have an hour argument tomorrow night just to determine whether to extend the stay uh, or whether to uh, terminate the stay. And uh, last I checked, there are a very funny series of amicus briefs coming in, uh, one from John Kerry and other sort of national security people saying, like, oh, my God, leave the stay in place. Uh, and uh, one from a whole bunch of other states who have now piled on and said, we want in on this action, too. So it's fun times at the Ninth Circuit. And are they citing in those briefs? Are they using law? Like. Uh- 
case law precedent. <laughs> no. Oh, they're just saying unicorns, ponies. Yeah. No, they are citing law. I mean, there's you know a very very clear legal standard of when you grant a stay, and you know there are tests that you go through, and the questions are you know there's sort of four stages of questions, but one is you know likelihood of succeeding on the merits down the line, mm-hmm. and one is you know irreparable harm to the parties if you if you uh, don't grant the stay. So they're sort of working through those things, and one of the questions that's emerging that's kind of funny is that the Justice Department is claiming there's going to be irreparable harm to the Justice Department if this stay uh, stays in effect, and you want to tell them, no, you are so much better today <laughs> than you were a week ago. Just put your heads down and say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's an interesting question, though. I mean, wow. you know, he hasn't even um, con- confirmed his attorney general yet. I mean, these people in the Justice Department, they a lot of them are not political appointees, but there's no reason to think they sympathize or agree with Donald Trump. I and mean, where does he find lawyers in the Justice Department who are on his side to argue his case in the Ninth Circuit, or doesn't that matter? Well, it's it's been fun to watch. I shouldn't say fun. Uh, it's fun if you're me to watch some of the uh, lawyers who are trying to argue uh, on behalf of the Justice Department, and they're sort of doing their best effort to be like, we need this stay. It's an emergency. And you can sort of see the thought bubble over their head is like, sweet. God, how did I get myself into this gig? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, even, even I mean, they're doing, I think, the best that they can do, but, you know, watching... But they're phoning it in. Watching, yeah. watching in the Washington State case, you know, this poor woman who's just like, oh, <laughs> kill me now, kill me now. Do uh, they, what do they say? I mean, what is the best that can be said in lawyer language? It, I mean, there's a very, very good argument that says that the president has broad, plenary, discretionary power over immigration, and by the way, these were the same arguments that were made about DACA, right? I mean, these are not uh, trivial arguments mm-hmm. that the president has huge discretion and statutory and otherwise uh, to do what he or she, let's say, needs to do uh, to uh, protect our borders. And so these are good arguments. And I think if you get to the merits of this case, it's not an easy case. I mean, there are really good arguments, all the ones we heard last year at DACA, mm-hmm. arguments at the court about about why the president gets to do things like this. But, you know, I think the real problem is that we haven't seen a ban that is a religious ban. And uh, Trump did himself no favors when he said, oh, no, this is just about country of origin. Uh, And, you know, once he did that and said, this is a Muslim ban, I'm just not calling it a Muslim ban. He did not help himself or his lawyers at all. um, Every once in a while, someone gets a phrase across that just nails it. But I thought... um, Ben Wittes, a legal writer in Lawfare, when he first described this executive order, he said he said malevolence mitigated by incompetence, <laughs> you know, which just seemed to to nail it. But they, the incompetence was partly because they rushed this thing; they did it so fast. I mean, all right, presumably they've learned their lesson a little bit. Why not right now redo it, do over on the executive order, a more legally sound one that can pass constitutional muster? take out some countries, put in some countries, do whatever they have to do. But, I mean, everyone sort of agrees as a version of this, they could get past. They were just so half-assed about how they did it that they blew their opportunity. zip it. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're giving too many good ideas. Don't tell the president. Don't worry. Trump listens to nothing. He only watches CNN. So anything you say here, it's a safe space. You know what? One of the interesting... uh, Jacob and I were joking... um, 
in the green room about what what does it matter that John Kerry and Madeleine Albright are you know putting out a national security argument about this. One of the interesting paragraphs in their brief is had there been genuine interagency coordination if we believed at any level that national security people had been looped into this decision-making process, we would really have more confidence in giving the president unfettered uh, authority to do things. But this seems to have been cooked up in an underground lab, you know, with like two interns and a pony. And I think that there's a feeling that, you know, when you say you're going to give the president certain discretion and certain authority, it assumes that agencies are being consulted. And I don't think that's a totally trivial argument. In other words, I think once you're staffed up, and you have people saying, you know, this actually really does make our allies extremely angry and embolden ISIS, I think that you, it may be harder to do this regardless. So part of what's weird about this is, yes, it was sloppy, but also I don't think that everybody that needed to weigh in, even to make it a constitutionally plausible order, has weighed in yet. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this gets to my kind of, uh, and I'd like to be curious to know what you think about this, Delia. My general sense that like we're we're generally overstating the level of like diabolicalness in this administration and understating the level of just like extreme incompetence. And uh, yeah, what do you think? I mean, do you think that what we're witnessing, what this is an example of, is not some plan, but basically you have a bunch of people who have never worked in government before who also think that like they are the greatest minds who ever existed. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny because we were having this argument this morning. Um, Jack Goldsmith, who, um, who uh, uh, worked in the Bush administration, uh, head of the Office of Legal Counsel had a really kind of terrifying post today that said, look, the reason Trump was going after judges, you know, by name and actually trying to incite anger towards a specific judge uh, isn't just incompetence. He's trying to sort of destabilize things. The and judiciary, the whole judiciary, right? And, and it's always, you know, my response when you get into these arguments is yes and. Yeah. Yes, it's incompetent. <laughs> and yes, it's also, if you want to impute three-dimensional chess, you know, move, it's also that. In other words, I don't know. I'm just not savvy enough to know whether these things are just, you know, blindly mishandled or there's some incredible long game that I'm not getting. But I- I'm willing to concede that both could be true, <laughs> or at the very least, that you can turn something that was a huge, bumbled, ill thought out maneuver into something that can destabilize the entire judicial branch. I think that has it has it interested you to see that in the resistance that lawyers have become heroes that this uh, and and these and all these judges many of them women who have who weighed in so quickly on the ban and were really really willing to call it what it is um from the beginning and this uh, you, you've probably seen the hashtag like lawyers of the first responders lawyers of the new first responders and it's very powerful you know that you that sort of if we can't rally beyond, behind the executive branch of the legislature like what's left um, and then the rumors that Steve Bannon had even deleted the judiciary from the, the .gov web, WhiteHouse.gov website. I mean, that's, but I don't you, know. Your, your question to Dahlia is, is she happy that lawyers are, are you now happy heroes? That <laughs> lawyers and judges are the yeah. resistance heroes. Uh, yes, yeah. first, of all, first of all, speaking on behalf of the lawyers, we yes. always knew we were the we heroes. <laughs> we just didn't show it right off. I mean, I think there was something, you know, I remember um, when the sort of airport revolution happened, you know, last Saturday night, and yeah. you saw all these yeah. guys 
guys with like triple thick glasses, many of them women, by the way, hunched over their laptops, you know, yeah. at the airports. And I just remember being like, well, there we are. Look that at us. Inspiring. You know? That was inspiring. Was, I just kept thinking the yeah. framers were like, yes, you know, <laughs> this is what makes this country different is that there is. And I think, you know, it's kind of a, it's such a double edged sword because I think, you know, on the one hand, we really revere the rule of law. We revere the constitution. I always sort of say for a secular country, we sure built a big old temple, you know, at uh-huh. one first street. And, and that reverence is really powerful. It's also incredibly fragile. Mm-hmm. And we forget that the, you know, that the judicial branch, the rule of law, the constitution are not self-executing. They're not self-protecting. And so I think that there's a way in which the sort of natural tentativeness of lawyers initially to just race in and just do stuff, you know, and like, let's just do stuff. We're lawyers and there's law. Um, I think, you know, that didn't happen. But the minute there was something to do and a a really, I think, clear and cognizable threat. Yeah. Boy, we were there like that. And, And I think it's not an accident that, you know, the first... I don't want to essentialize this, but I think the first four or five rulings that came down in the first 24 hours were women judges. Uh, I think it's it, women probably are, are, you know, acting up the best of their ability in this profession. And I think it's really interesting. Do you, yeah. I mean, do you have any sense of why that might be? I mean, just Hillary, obviously, was a lawyer and identified as a lawyer and, and presented herself like a lawyer. So maybe the I don't know. What do you think? Why? Why? Ann Donnelly and Sally Yates and I mean, they aren't the judge specifically, although Ann Donnelly is one of the judges you're talking about. And Leonie Brinkham. I mean, mm-hmm. it was amazing. You know, two judges in Boston, both women. And it's again, I don't think it's because yeah. they were women, but I think women were awful quick to say, all right, I'll say it. Yeah, <laughs> this sucks. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think the march helped that. I really do. I think the march had this backdrop of consensus that made you, I don't know, more able on day two to I, kind of call bullshit. I think that, and I think, you know, that, that rollout roll of Neil Gorsuch in this sort of, yes. you know, White House ceremony that was like, white guy, white guy, white guy, white yes. guy. Mrs. Scalia, white guy, white guy, white guy. You know, I think <laughs> that was really, like, I just felt like, is it really 1920? Like, this is so weird. And it's mm. it was just visually quite It's weird amazing. they don't bother with tokenism. Yeah. Well, I, I think mean, that, was Mrs. Exactly. that was Mrs. Scalia. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's, yeah. you know, I do think there's a weird way in which if you are used to the Obama White House and what mm. any rollout looked like, much less a Sotomayor or a Kagan, to just see this wall of guys who look like my uncle, <laughs> all of them. It's, it's, it, it is kind of motivating. Yeah. So Virgi- Virginia was talking earlier about how Trump reacts when he is thwarted and cornered. And this is getting back to the constitutional crisis question. Over the weekend, his tweets about the tweet about the so-called judge. People say, you know, you're calling the judiciary into question. You know, constitutional crisis, constitutional crisis. When's it? What, what's it going to? What would it look like if it happened? And could it happen in reaction to this ruling? Say the court of appeals stays the stay or doesn't unstay the stay or whatever the, the language is. He's, he's defeated. He's been it's, he dealt this humiliation, and these judges have stopped him. Is there any world in which he tries to go around that in an extra-constitutional way that is issues in an order to Homeland Security, immigration, customs agents – enforce my ban, but I don't recognize the ruling? I think we were closer to it last week. 
I think when, uh, you know, when uh, Leon and, and Mark Stern and I wrote that piece about, holy cow, is this a constitutional crisis? Like, it was interesting because, you know, we went through our Rolodex calling con law professors and we were like, holy cow, is this a constitutional crisis? And they were all like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it would look like. We haven't really, this isn't Little Rock. This is something else. Huh. Um, and what was interesting was to the extent that some of them really felt it was going to manifest quickly. They said it is. It's going to be CBP officials and federal marshals, you know, at the arrivals terminal at Dulles, you know, with weapons. Now, I think that that has gone away because I think the compliance with the order has been so complete uh, since Friday. So it's not going to be that. But it's interesting because when you sort of try to imagine what the next iteration of that might look like, it's hard to say. It's just, I think, some version of... This is the first president, at least in, you know, our history, including Nixon, who just thinks the courts are silly. And mm. that's, you know, really, I mean, it's in a deep, deep way. I feel like he comes at it the way any business person comes at it, not a constitutional thinker, which is like, well, but when they're wrong, I just like need to like pay a guy or beat someone up and then I get the right <laughs> decision. You know, it's not this notion that there's this overarching rule of law or this system or checks. There's just bad judges and good judges. And if you, you know, deride a bad one long enough, you'll get your outcome you want. We're, we're going to take some questions, but while people get set up, we can ask you a little, little more. But we're going to have microphones up here and here. And if you want to ask a question, come towards the front. Um, but in the meantime, I didn't mean to cut you off, Jamel, but I wanted to, to know about Gorsuch, what, what, you, what you think. I mean, and how do we, how do we deal with Gorsuch in the, in the context of what happened to Merrick Garland? I mean, I think mm -hmm. I've been reading all the coverage, and I guess my feeling is that Gorsuch is someone who's he's it's probably about the least terrible thing Trump's done. I mean, he's he's qualified, he's intelligent, he's someone who, who in ordinary circumstances get confirmed, but he follows on this kind of mini coup where we haven't had anybody, we haven't had a Supreme Court justice for over a year because the Republicans decided to create a new precedent that we've never had before, that you don't, that the Democrats don't get to have, don't get to confirm a justice if you are in some undefined range of a future election. Of course, you're always in range of a future election. So what should we do? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question that Senate Democrats are, you know, drinking themselves to death over right now. Mm -hmm. I think they're trying to figure out, you know, is this the hill we die on? We've clearly been completely, you know, slurred and maligned, that we, we have no sort of ability to stop this other than with a filibuster. Is this worth killing the filibuster over? And I think, you know, some of what we're hearing is, well, since it's Scalia's seat anyway, or, you know, we're not changing the aggregate you know, composition of the court. Maybe this isn't the one we fight about. But the notion that, like, the next one is going to be the one we fight about strikes me as a little bit silly. And the only other thing I would say about Gorsuch, Jacob, and I think this is so important, is that he is now getting tethered to this rule of law conversation and mm -hmm. executive power conversation that he does not want his confirmation hearings to be a referendum on, are you going to be, you know, a rubber stamp for this president? Are you a total wuss? How do we know you're not a wuss? Those are not 
I mean, he has not written extensively on this. Why would he? He's not, you know, it's not come across his desk. But the idea now that his entire confirmation conversation is going to be tagged to the president who hates judges is really fraught <laughs> for him. He just wants to talk about his Hobby Lobby victory. <laughs> well, and that and skiing. Yeah, right, exactly. I don't see anybody standing up to ask questions. Is that because it's, this is people, all, you all work for the federal government and you don't want to be. You could, you don't have to, um, you don't have to identify yourself, but you do have to just want instruction. Um, please ask a, a pointed, short question. Don't do what I do and give a little speech in the guise of asking a question. Actually, ask a question. Hi there. Thanks for being here. So what's the game plan uh, for Republican politicians? What do they do from here? If this administration really tanks, they're in trouble. Um, is part of what they're doing now to consolidate the white vote and to try to uh, strengthen that and, and motivate that? Just want your thoughts. I'm Thank point you. That one at Jamel. Yeah. Well, you know, um, so I think if this administration really tanks, which I mean, we have to like have a new definition of what really tanks means. <laughs> because if it's, we're like, it's, it's a uh, barely a week, barely two, like two weeks and a couple days past inauguration. And we're already discussing constitutional crises. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you're, when, when that's where you are. And I think last I checked his Gallup approval was like 40% and it's bad for him. Um, arguably he's like in the process of tanking. I think, there's a real possibility, right, that, like, come next next November, it won't really matter what Republicans are trying to do because they'll, they'll have lost their seats. That, like, not, it, I, I do firmly believe that, like, nothing in politics is static, and it is entirely possible, just within the realm of possibility, that this creates a kind of sustained wave that kind of just wipes out a majority, uh, no problem, no question. Assuming... <laughs> assuming that doesn't happen assuming something less than that happens um i i do think that republicans recognizing the kind of tenuous position they may be in will really start to move rapidly on doing what they can to consolidate whatever electoral advantage they have and so you know this this proposed voter fraud commission from the white house i think it's just a stalking horse for uh, whenever Attorney General or whenever Jeff Sessions is confirmed and they can use the Department of Justice to begin purging voter rolls um, in the guise of kind of cleaning up voter rolls and they can begin sort of both scrutinizing efforts like those in Oregon or in Colorado to expand voting and then removing scrutiny from efforts to restrict voting, kind of mm. tilt the playing field in that direction as much as possible. You know, in Virginia, the House delegates uh, in committee is a bill that would allocate electoral college votes by congressional district ra rather than winner take all, which, you know, on the, on its face sounds like, yeah, this is kind of fair. But in practice, what that means is that you're gerrymandering the electoral college, taking advantage of existing, mm. existing gerrymandered maps to make it easier for a Republican candidate to win electoral votes. And so I would not be surprised, hate to sound, hate to sound really depressing right now, um, but I would not <laughs> be surprised if in the the states with more radical Republican legislatures, you're going to start seeing a move towards that kind of thing to institutionalize um, advantages that the Republican Party uh, that are they're currently kind of contingent right now, but to make them make them solid. Hmm. The one reason to think that won't happen is that if that were to happen, I do think that would just completely throw the legitimacy of our political system into question. Right? That like at a certain point, people would just say, "Hey, why are we even doing this? Because it's not fair." 
Like this is this is why I think Republicans should hope that if Trump happens to win re-election in 2020, that he does so with a popular vote majority. Because it's one thing, we already had two of these, right? Like a third one, you get to the point where people are like, fuck this system, right? Like if, if, if more people can't win, then what's the point? And so that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the moderating force there, that like counter-majoritarianism can only go so far before you do see a backlash. I mean, we tend to look at them and say, you know, how can they be so stupid? But members of Congress are calculating machines. They are supercomputers when it comes to reelection, <laughs> right? And, you know, whether they're 51 votes against Betsy DeVos in the Senate is going to be depend on, you know, a, a confluence of factors, including Trump's approval rating. And so, but ultimately, it is going to depend on one more senator making the calculation. I'm more likely to get reelected right. if I vote against her than if I vote right. for her. There's a there's a line from Batman number one, Action Comics <laughs> number one where Bruce Wayne describes criminals as a cowardly and frightful lot. And that, that basically applies to politicians across the board. And so if, if they feel that they're in danger from Trump, they'll act accordingly. Yeah. Next question. Hi. Thank you all so much for coming out. Um, my question has to do with this idea of rebellion, of the resistance, because over the weekend we saw quite a few Democratic elected officials come out to airports and speak in favor of... Uh, these immigrants, these travelers who are banned from the U.S. So my question is, what do Democratic individual politicians have to gain from uh, Trump's presidency? What is or is there political capital on the table for them to take advantage of? Question, Dahlia, you want to take a crack at that? Well, I, I, I saw mean, you nodding. Well, mm-hmm. I, I'm only nodding because I think that, you know, I've been, I've been sort of chuckling that, you know, all the states that Washington state approached initially to join this lawsuit and you know Minnesota was in it but it took a couple days I think for other states to join in and to me that sort of signals that it's public huge public outcry mm-hmm. and resistance that is motivating de- you know Democrats who are holding elected office and I think you know one of the things that's been very weird and destabilizing is you keep looking around and being like where are the grown-ups you know where yeah. where where are our grown-ups in this and I think you know the women's march was a really good example of we are going to have to be our own grown-ups, and I think we're going to have to drag our elected officials kicking and screaming, you know, to do... So I I do think that um, that, uh, Democrats are incredibly responsive, but only once they figure out that we are going to (laughs) be... in their grill, as the <laughs> as we now say. Uh, but I do think that it's really, really, uh, they need the signaling to come, I think, from the resistors and not vice versa. I mean, we were, yeah. Virginia, we were, you know, uh, Democrats were tisk-tisking the Tea Party in, you know, 2009. How, you know, what bad banners, how unfair, how terrible. And now they're follow, starting to pick up the Tea Party playbook, yeah. and they're kind of enjoying it. Definitely kind of enjoying it. Yeah, there have been um, suggestions about um, overwhelming what town hall kind of meetings, the way the Tea Party's Tea Partiers used to peppering questions at the local level, and and then also blocking Gorsuch. You know, would be a, would just be clear when they go low, we go low. <laughs> like it's just that's just you know they did it to us, so now it's your turn. We can't blame people, even Democrats, for dragging their feet. I mean, everyone is 
what was the Carter administration, like overcome by events, OBE, like this, that, that has never been more applicable than now. I mean, everyone has had to do these personal reckonings with what are they in this for? Who, who are they serving? What do they even want to accomplish? I mean, you know, this thing of Paul Ryan only wants his tax break. Just give him his tax <laughs> break and so we can start impeachment. You know, you just... <laughs> <laughs> we dig that deal. Yeah, yeah we'll dig exactly. that deal. What is, uh, Dahlia, what are the odds that Gorsuch ends up being confirmed in time to vote on the appeal of the stay? I, I don't think good, and I think that it, it's kind of, it's, it, 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 it reinforces itself because I think the Supreme Court, there's no way the Supreme Court is going to wade into this while they're 4-4. And so I think in a weird way, if any you know, thing comes to the court initially, uh, the court's going to kick it away and say, you know, we're going to pile this up with the other cases. We're not going to hear until we have nine. So I think the court, you know, has no interest in taking this until Gorsuch is on. And at the same time, that really amps up the pressure on what are you going to do about this? You know, what are you going to do about this? So I think it, it, it's not to anyone's benefit in some way. But I do think that the court is going to have to wait at some level until at least there's a circuit split or some, you know, principled reason that they can they can hear it. Because I don't think they want to wait into this right now, particularly, you know, as a sort of counter-majoritarian check that doesn't even have a majority. It, like, would make your head explode. So, But, but it's a prisoner's dilemma because the court doesn't want to rule without nine justices. And the Democrats don't want to confirm the ninth justice because he could be a vote on the decision. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sounds no. like a filibuster to me. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not fun for anyone. And I think that if I'm right that Democrats are going to fight Gorsuch now, not just on the principled Merrick Garland argument, but also on the, you know, if you're the guy who's the rubber stamp, we're going to have a problem with that, then they really do have, I mean, I do think he'll ultimately get confirmed, but I think that they have a real interest in having this conversation during his hearings, and that's mm. going to be quite, quite, quite different from if this weren't going on. I think we take two more quick questions. Oh, was there one here? Went away. There's, are you a question? So I'm sorry we're not going to get any more, but we'll do one here and one here at least and then see how we're doing. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, so earlier you mentioned impeachment. So what cover does Ryan and McConnell need to start impeachment? I mean, obviously Trump's done some things that would trigger impeachment in other eras, but now it seems like the standards are different. When do they start impeachment? Well, you're, you're, you're looking <laughs> at me. Can we get the show on the road? I mean, <laughs> I think there might be a certain amount of projection in thinking that they want impeachment and are, like, waiting for the right time. I don't see any sign that they have the slightest interest in having this guy out of office. In fact, I think they see it as, as Dahlia was getting, as you were getting at, as, you know, opportunity to get their agenda through. But I can't imagine a war. I mean, first of all, impeachment is still a big deal. Mm-hmm. You need a, you need you need a base for impeachment. I don't I don't even I don't think we have one yet. Uh, I think there's a pretty good chance we'll get one. Um, but I do not see a world in which a Republican Congress impeaches Trump. I mean, he would the level of criminal proven criminality would have to be well beyond what is almost imaginable. I think the odds of impeachment revolve around Democrat recapture of. Congress, which is a long shot, particularly in Senate. But yeah, yeah. I sort of have two thoughts. The first, I think you're right. I'm not sure either Ryan or McConnell are particularly interested in impeachment, or won't be until like you know, if Trump if Trump is 
you know, hitting 60, 65% disapproval, which I don't think is out of the range of possibility, given that on election day last year, his favorability was like at 37%. So in my head, 37% is like a possible floor for Donald Trump, maybe even a little lower. Um, at that level, when you're looking at your whole project being not just like your project being dragged down to the drain, but potentially sort of you forever being tarred as the people who enabled this, then I think impeachment might become a thing they start thinking about. Or envisioning, and if that happens, right? Like I tend to think that anything can be—I mean, not not literally anything, but like impeach. Many things can be impeachable offenses. I don't actually agree that like there needs to be some sort of hard, clear thing. You know, what was Bill Clinton impeached for? Lying, lying under oath. Eh. What was <laughs> what was Andrew what was Andrew Johnson impeached for? Andrew Johnson was impeached basically because he pissed off the Republican Congress. Like that's it. Like they found they found some bullshit reason to say, "Hey, we got to impeach Andrew Johnson." That was it. And I think that I think if 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 Ryan and McConnell get to the point where they want to impeach Donald Trump, they will find some bullshit reason to say we got to impeach Donald Trump. Now, whether or not that will help them rehabilitate their historical reputations <laughs> is an entirely different question. Um, and if if they don't think it will, then I think you know they you know impeachment's like not ever going to be on the table. And there's never been an impeachment with a same party Congress. No, right. No. Right. And, and can I just right. put in a play, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, just one pitch for my Ben and Jerry's flavor of the month, which is emolument, <laughs> um, because I really do think. Oh, that, that's where they get it. I, I do yeah. think that insofar as it's the boringest grounds, I also think the sort of self-dealing corruption, you know, today was the day we were supposed to get an answer from the GSA. I just think there's this rolling furball of corruption and self-dealing <laughs> that at some point, if you're looking for a reason, right, right. it could yeah. be that. In Johnson's case, it was like he dismissed Ed, Ed, Edward Stanton as Secretary of War when he really shouldn't have done so without proper consultation. And so it was like, you know, it was illegal, I guess. <laughs> uh, it was politics. Right? Yeah, and yeah. then they decided to impeach right. him. White, white shirt, please. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, can, okay. Uh, I have a question about uh, your guys' thoughts on Ivanka and Jared um, and Uh-oh. kind of how they reconcile their role in this administration, which seems so at odds with the carefully crafted, cultivated image of themselves that they've put out there, um, particularly Jared with the anti-Semitism that's so rampant in this administration and the refugee ban when his grandparents were refugees. Well, uh, I'll give you my take on it. You know, when um, the, uh, the Chicago uh, 7 conspiracy, Chicago 10 conspiracy trial in Chicago um, was tried by a famous uh, Jewish judge called Judge Hoffman. And Abby Hoffman, who was one of the defendants, famously described him. He said, Ashanda for the Goyim. <laughs> translated from Yiddish means it's, a sh- it's an embarrassment for the Jews in front of the Gentiles. And I would say of Jared Kushner, Ashanda for the Goyim. But- Ashanda, actually, outside his synagogue on Fifth Avenue, there's, a, uh, there's someone constantly walking around with a sign that says, Shonda, shame. Um, I mean, I don't know what to make of them. I, I, I mean, I don't know what to make of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's a pass. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, Al, I, mean, grab your, I think grab your wallet and the Nordstrom decision is to, like, not carry her brand. Is, uh, some of this boycotting action has been surprisingly effective. So who knows? But the, the just like we now hate all the Trumps and everything they do is just kind of culturally funny. You know, that just like her accessories line, there's something fascist about it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, actually, I think there's something to that. But. <laughs> we'll have to save that for another show. Hey, yeah, maybe. But, um, so there's this uh, really interesting book that came out last year um, called uh, The Case for Uncle Tom. And it's, it's a really good book, and it, it doesn't sound like what you might think it is. What it is, it's an argument in favor of intergroup policing, right? That, like, groups have a right to say who belongs and who does not. Um, and in this case, in the case of the book, the argument is that, like, this, this is where the term Uncle Tom has a really – and this is written by an African-American scholar – has a really important function in the black community because it is, it is our way of policing who belongs and who does not. As far as I'm concerned, if Jewish Americans want to say that Jared Kushner isn't one of us, I got, I, you know, you can do it. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Jamal. The facts, yeah. the facts are on your side as far as I see them. Um, it's kind of how I feel about Ben Carson these days. Yeah. Uh, but real quick, on, real quick on Ivanka. I don't. I, I tend to think that Ivanka is very much a part of the Trump family and is very much aware of everything that's wrong with her father. I also think that she is playing a very particular role, role which is sort of like a, I'm, I'm going to mangle the. I'm not going to go there, but um, which is that she is supposed to like embody this kind of idealized like capitalist white womanhood and. That's her whole brand, and that is very that fits very well with the Trump thing of you know home family tradition. And uh, I think I think I think she's very much a conscious part of this in ways that um, aren't immediately obvious, but are totally there. Though you're wearing full Ivanka tonight, aren't you? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I would just say you know that column about was it Frank Bruni about how pale and small and thin Jared Kushner was becoming. It was such a strange oh, piece of, it was like, he's really skinny. He looks <laughs> so sad. And it was yeah. such a, I felt like I could never get to the point where I felt bad for him. And after I read that column, and he's this sort of wraith-like figure just haunting the White House, so, hoping someone will pay attention to him. I have to say my heart went out to him a little bit. I mean, we keep talking about him as though what he embodies most is, is New York Jewishness. But he is, I mean, I don't know how well it's understood down here, but it, from a very particular sort of gangsterish crowd of northern New Jersey Jewish families. <laughs> What's the name for that? Um, well, I mean, you, parole is what his dad is on after, yeah, after right. spending time in jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So these aren't right. These aren't like the Hoffman lawyer. They're they're um, could, a different could, crowd. Could you? Could you imagine? Could you? Could you imagine if Barack Obama had a close advisor from Chicago whose dad had served time in prison? Yeah. Could you and imagine what the reaction was? Be? His son-in-law. Yeah. 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 Sorry, yeah. I had to take off the glasses for dramatic yeah, effect. That was nice. Go. That was good. Yeah, it is amazing. Yeah. I think that's it for our live show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Virginia. Thank you, Jamel. Thank you, Dahlia, for joining us. Thank you, audience. You've been fantastic. Yes. We will definitely do this again. It was great. I want to thank the good folks at the Hamilton Theater here. This is a great place. This is really nice. The food was good, too, right? Yeah. Tip your waiters. Tip your waiters. Uh, And uh, just a few more credits. Jason DeLeon produces Trumpcast. Faith Smith and Kirsten Holtz from Slate produced tonight's live show. Thank you, Faith and Kirsten. 
I want to thank our sound engineer, Jason Gambrell. He's back there. You can't see him. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. John DiDomenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thank you for joining us tonight in Washington. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.